Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com slash aware. So our podcast is called Right and Wrong. So, are these your notes? These, <laughs> these are your notes about what we're going to say. What does I it say? it would be a good... <laughs> I didn't even get to idea. Okay. Maybe I can just ask you the question. Oh, okay. <laughs> It's going well. It's going really well. <laughs> whenever you are ready. Oh, it's me. Yes, I it's you. I did this last time as well. I was like, whenever you're ready, I'm starting. <laughs> <laughs> okay, <clears throat> let me try that again. <clears throat> Hello, and welcome back to the Right and Wrong podcast. I'm Jamie. And I'm Emma, and today we are joined. Wow, apparently I can't speak today. Um, <laughs> and I'm Emma, and today we are joined by Femi Coyote, clinical psychologist, PhD candidate, and author of Light Seekers. Hello, Femi. Hi. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me, guys. Thank you. Oh, it's great. It's great to have you here with us. Let's talk about Light Seekers. It was we both we both got a copy of it and read it. Brilliant. It follows a psychologist who is looking into the horrific events that took place in Allo back in 2012. What was it about that tragedy that really drew you in to wanting to write about it? Um, I think it was, first of all, the, the, my fascination with what happens when everybody knows what happened. <laughs> you know, uh, yeah. What, yeah. What, what happens when the, the crime is in full view of the world and we know who did it. Um, and I was very, very interested in the, the what you can say, the factors that contributed to making that happen. Uh, because I, right. I, I was convinced that those kind of events in, in humanity, including war or, you know, even domestic violence, it's, it's, it's not a, a trigger event. It's usually a series of small things that lead to that kind of a big bank tragedy, so to speak. And I was very interested in how that happened. And I was also mm -hmm. very interested in what happens after something like that uh, occurs. Yeah. And I remember that the first thing I kept on telling myself was, so what do the neighbors say after the event, do they say high five? That was a great killing yesterday. You know, Oof. we should do it yeah. again. You know, I was really very, and, I, I, it, and it wasn't funny. It really was a very deep, soul-searching thing as to how human beings can do this to another human beings mm -hmm. in a very collective, purposeful manner. Um, so yeah. that that really got me thinking, uh, and I think. Um, there was, there was a quote that uh, I, I came across a long time ago from another writer I can't remember, and he says, I write the book to know what happens next. <laughs> and, oh, that's a really, yeah. Yeah, and I think that was what I did. I, re I really wanted to know what happens next, and, and that was why I wrote the book. That's brilliant. Did you, did, you, did you find that sort of enlightening catharsis through writing the book? Obviously, you must have done a lot of research into the, the event itself. Yes, I did. I did. I think, uh, I think it was very, very 
eye-opening in terms of um, crowd psychology, in terms of some of the things that, you know, occurred in that particular um, region of the country, in terms of what would make people be so trigger-ready, to be so triggered, so to speak, to take uh, an action like that. Uh, But I think it got to a point in the research when it stopped being interesting and became... Um, what's the word? Uh, sad in its in its banality, so to speak. Mm. Right, and yeah. it 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 was just so sad, you know, because yeah. people did not have any profound reason, any dramatic reason for why they did what they did beyond they felt threatened or they felt um, insecure and. It, it didn't make for a good story at the end of the day, you know. Um, oh. <laughs> it may, I mean, I'm, talk, I'm talking about the facts now. The facts yeah. did not yeah. make for a good story at the end of the day because the reasons ended up being just really silly and, and, um, and quite human in its, in its uh, banality, so to speak. So that really made me start thinking about what if... Um, and mm. that that obviously becomes the, the the makings of any story. What if, you know? Yeah. So yes, while the story was inspired by a real event, uh, the 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 what happened after the event is totally fictional. Yeah, yeah, yeah that makes yeah. sense. And you, um, you know, yourself are obviously a trained clinical psychologist. How much did you draw on on that experience while writing the book? I think, you know, I, I have to say, I almost always regret ever saying that I trained as a clinical psychologist in my bio, <laughs> you know, uh, because when, uh, it really is all that. It's just the training. I never practiced. I, 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 right. I did my internship and I, and from the first day in a, in a clinical setting, I knew this was not for me. You know, I, oh, okay. you know, I, I just... I would listen to uh, to diagnosis. I would listen to people in therapy, and I would like, you know, my mind was always going to, what if, well, you know, what if, what if this is not the issue? You know, what if you're lying? What if I really couldn't focus on the patient, so to speak, because I was always making up stories in my head. I must say, I really was just making up stories in my head, and I knew that I was not doing uh, the patient's justice. Uh, so I never practiced as a clinical psychologist. I I love psychology. I love the insights that it gives into human behavior. Uh, and there are many different aspects of psychology. I later came to find out that I could have gotten involved in that would not have required therapy. But that's not okay. the point. <laughs> but that's, that's not the point. I think the point really where writing Light Seekers is concerned is that it did help me to understand concepts very quickly. So, you know, so I was able to read research. I I subscribed to a lot of journals. Um, And you have to understand that the the field of investigative psychology, uh, which is what my protagonist is, is an investigative psychologist, is a very new field. Um, It's a very evolving field. There are very few universities in the world that, offer it as a, a postgraduate course. And so the, the, the literature that exists in that space is very, very almost niche, so to speak. But what it did was that my training in, 
psychology allowed me to be able to understand concepts very easily, allowed mm. me to be able to apply it uh, and sort of break it down uh, in a non, um, what do you call it? I think in a more um, accessible manner, so to speak. And so... Um, less academic. Yeah, that's the word. <laughs> yes. Yeah. It, was, it was much less academic. You know, I, right. think, I think in terms of my training and my experience, I think what came to bear the most was actually my almost two decades in advertising, not as much as my training in psychology. It's really the fact okay. that I have worked in TV and film for such a long time that that had more bearing on the writing of the book than my training as a psychologist. Right. Oh, okay. That's interesting. Yeah, that's really interesting. Yeah. How did you find the research element of everything? Was that something that you found quite interesting to delve into? Or It wasn't. It, it really wasn't. I was very, very lucky to have a very good friend of mine that we both worked on a soap um, some time back. And so yeah. he's also a writer and he's also a lawyer. And he comes from that region and I just sort of reached out to him to say, you know what, um, can you help me with this? And he said, yeah, I can help you with that. You know, so I would basically read articles in the newspapers and then I would write some kind of a what if scenario and I would send it to him and say, is this sort of what could have happened? And he would say, yeah, that makes sense. That's, that's logical. And he <laughs> helped me. Uh. Yeah, he did help me a lot in... Um, understanding because i'm not from that part of nigeria um i'm from the western part of nigeria and the incident took place in the south south part of nigeria and so i i needed to get into that region and to sort of immerse myself so he did just some really wonderful things like he would go to the airport and he would take pictures and send to me and then he would take videos of the environment so that really helped to contextualize what i was reading in the media you know yeah. um, just to get a sense of what um, what was um what was real and what was plausible but the nicest part of it was when I got to a point in writing the book that I knew I had to travel to that region. I just knew mm. it. <clears throat> so I just, I just basically just got on the plane and I went and uh, I spent a, a couple of weeks there and interviewing people and really just contextualizing my story. And that was when I put in what I would say the texture the setting, the environment. So the first draft was very much the storyline, so to speak. But the, the actual texturing and the coloring and the, the, the layering actually happened when I was in the location and I was able to sort of immerse myself in that space. So I would say that research was actually very organic and very, mm. very... Um, very interesting. It was an eye-opener for me because that was also a part of Nigeria that I was not very familiar with. And um, and the fact that I was able to then say that, look, it's time that I realized that this is not as exciting as I wanted it to be, and then mm -hmm. turning it into a fully fictionalized town, a fully fictionalized, uh, fictionalized scenario, then sort of freed me from the drudgery of research, so to speak. Yeah, right. well, that makes a lot of sense. And as you said before, Femi, you've worked obviously heavily on in television screenplays um, as well. How did you first get into that and that world? 
uh, actually started out as an actor on stage. Oh. <laughs> um, and um, I realized pretty on that I did not like being directed. Um, I really wasn't good at taking instructions. I really wasn't, you know. And, um, and I, I, I loved acting and I loved, but I realized that I stepped into the role of acting or into the space of acting because I really loved telling stories. And yeah. I thought that was a way of expressing myself in a creative space. But pretty on, uh, it, it became very clear that I really preferred being at the back end of things. And, um, mm. and, and writing came very, very, I think, naturally to me. And so I wrote my first play in the university and it was quite successful. And it just kept, kept, I just kept going until I finished uni. I went for my master's. And when I dropped out of my training in clinical psychologists, I sort of packed my bag from, from the hospital where I was working and I went straight back to Lagos. And that was when um, what you call the Nigerian film scene, which, you know, popularly known as Nollywood, you know, was starting. Yeah. And so I ran back to Lagos and I said, okay, I can't do psychology anymore. And just, I think the week that I got back, there was a competition by a film company or a television company for new writers. And mm. I adapted one of my stage plays and it won. And That's that amazing. was how I, yeah, and that Brilliant. was how I got, yeah, that was how I got into film, you know. Um, and interestingly enough, so we got to the workshop, you know, so there are about five of us that won. Um, and so we have to go through a workshop, some kind of training uh, with a very, quite an eminent filmmaker, still has a huge influence on me. Her name is Ayoka Chenzira. And she, mm. she took us through a whole training and all that. And one of the students or one of the participants in the workshop was working in an advertising agency. And I said, oh, I would love to work in advertising. And he said, oh, come and do a copy test. And I went through. <laughs> That's amazing. <laughs> wow. Just like that. Yeah, just like that. And I went through a copy <laughs> test. And it's interesting that the copy test was about, was for a drug by Pfizer called Zoloft. And it was an antidepressant. And oh, okay. I was like, it is meant to be. I studied psychology. <laughs> I studied psychology. I know this drug and I could do it. And, and that was how I got the job, simply because I actually studied psychology and I know depression. <laughs> so, oh, that's that's really cool. so that was how yeah. I got into uh, film and advertising. And all the time when I was working in advertising, I kept on writing film and writing for TV and all that. Yeah. That's wow. incredible. What a life. I mean, and speaking of film, are we right in thinking that Lightseekers has been optioned? It has been optioned, uh, but it's still under the wraps in terms of, you know, what, um, how they want to take it forward. But yes, it has right. been optioned. But um, well, that's I, amazing. I that must be very exciting for you as a, you know, as someone who's worked, you know, in and around that industry for, for a long time, are you going to be working on the screen adaptation yourself or will Absolutely you trust it to someone else? Not. <laughs> 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 uh, you know, absolutely not. I, I, and I don't mean it in a, in a bad way. I think I deliberately wanted, I really deliberately went into the, 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 the novel writing space. It was a very conscious effort on my part to move right. away from film uh, because over the years, one of the things that has always complicated my, 
my sense of self has been the collaborative nature of film. And yeah. I, I, I never quite felt as if I was working on a material that was solely mine. And I never yeah. was quite comfortable or quite satisfied with the outcome, you know, at the end of the day, you know, the, the vision of the writer and the outcome. The film belongs to the director. That's the reality. You know, uh, yeah. the, the show belongs to the director. It doesn't belong to the writer, you know, um, but that's essentially what it is. And I really wanted to write a novel because I wanted something that was mine and something that I owned the creative process from the beginning to the end. And yeah. I think that that journey where Lightseekers was concerned has been completed and I've moved <laughs> on to writing book two and I don't oh, okay. know whether I am... Um, that I, it was such a fulfilling experience writing Light Seekers that I don't think I want to exchange that experience with something else right now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. that makes it a lot of, of sense. It would kind of taint that experience to yeah. some degree. Yeah, yeah. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. So it's not like I hate film or I don't want to work on film. It's really is that I'm on a creative journey that is very fulfilling for me right now. And it's taken me a long time to get here. And I don't want to jeopardize that feeling right now. That's yeah. great. Yeah, it makes a it lot might feel of sense. like you're going backwards in some ways if you then went to go and rewrite Light Seekers for screen. Yeah, yeah, definitely. yeah I, th- I think I'm mm. so. Yeah, that's it. It's like I'm done with that and I'm moving on. I, I would love to be part of the of the almost like what you would say, almost like consulting and saying no. Um, I think <laughs> this is no. what they would say, <laughs> or yeah, uh, yes, you got it right, and, or you got the cultural nuances and all of that. But in terms of actually getting involved, the way maybe uh, I don't know. I mean, and you also hear. I mean, this is a bit of a digression, Emma, but you hear <laughs> a lot of stories about you know authors that go on set and start throwing tantrums. That's not what I meant, you know, kind of thing. You know? <laughs> <laughs> and, 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 and I, I, I really just don't see myself in that space. I don't, you know, I, I, I don't see myself in that space. I think um, um, I, I want to, I want to write novels, and I really want to tell stories and have a bit more creative control on my on my um on my material and i am realistic enough to understand that such creative control is very rare in the film space yeah that's so true that is very very true um and uh how do you find femi balancing your work time and also working as a full-time managing creative director for an advertising agency i think they feed off each other in a way um okay uh, i Mm. think um advertising can be very very exciting it it, it's it's almost polaroid in terms of um you know it's intense it's polaroid you 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 get a brief you work with on it and if you're lucky Less than six weeks later, you have a commercial, you know, uh, or you have a campaign breaking and things like that. 
And I've always liked, I like that energy, that creativity on demand, so to speak, you know, coming up with fast stories, paced. coming up with, yeah, very fast yeah. paced. Um, yeah. I think another thing that I really, really love about advertising is complete, which, which is almost ironic because I sort of resent it in the film space, but in the advertising space is the idea of working with a group of people. You know, mm. I really love it so much, you know, it's, it's, yeah. you know, sharing ideas, talking about target audience, talking about projects and all of those kind of things always gets me going. And I find that when I work on my novel at night, the, the good days of writing generally, the good nights of writing generally lead to good days at the agency. You know, mm. um, I'm, yeah. I'm yeah, it's sort of like almost like the writing was like jogging and getting, you know, going to the gym in the morning, uh, you know, and so as soon as I finished writing at around 6 a.m. in the morning, I quickly go shower, get to work at 7.30, 8 o'clock, and I'm pumped. I'm really ready to go because it's I've, I've been on this creative streak, you know, yeah. about five hours earlier, you know. Uh, so I, I, it doesn't tire me, and I've been doing this for... A while I've been combining my side hustle, so to speak, of writing and my mm-hmm. day job, and I, I found that that's you know they feed off each other. I'm actually very depressed in the office when I'm not writing, mm. <laughs> and, I, and I'm very <laughs> excited in the office when I'm writing. And I, I, I would get to the office and I would like, guys, it was a good writing night, and you know I would tell, <laughs> one, or two, you know, I would tell one or two people the stories, and I know some of them are rolling their eyes like, you know, seriously, dude, can we get on with the job? <laughs> but but that's 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 what I found out. It, it's it, that they feed off each other. I enjoy it, and it, it's it's not a it's not a sacrifice at all. Yeah, it's not. Yeah, well, that's brilliant. I guess when you're on like a creative flow, it kind of works, doesn't it? it that yes. you know, yeah, yes. it works hand in hand, so it makes sense. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, it's great that your what your kind of passion inspires your work, and then almost like a reciprocal relationship between the two of them. Yes, and yeah. if we could dial it back a bit, when you had finished this book. What was your route into getting it published? Like, did you submit to agents? Did you submit straight to publishers? How, how did you approach breaking into the industry? Oh, God, I have been so lucky. I promise you. I have been <laughs> so lucky. Mm-hmm. I've been so blessed, Jimmy. Um, so I decided that I, I needed to write a novel. Um, I think, uh, yeah, I decided I needed to write a novel. And I think as far back as 2015, 2016, uh, you know, I toyed with a number of ideas and things like that. But I just couldn't do it. I really just couldn't do it on my own. You know, um, I think life happened. Uh, I, I, I didn't have the confidence. Uh, and uh, anyway, so I decided that I was going to go back to school. So yeah. I applied to the University of East Anglia for their crime writing um, um, program and I got admitted and I was lucky to have a, a PATH scholarship from from the school, from the Norwich Crime Festival and um, Brilliant. yeah and so uh, when I finished the book uh, as part of my thesis obviously we all had to enter it for um, for the Little Brown competition all, all the students have to enter it uh, it's, okay. it's, it's automatic and I was lucky to have won the little brown competition 
um, the Little Brown Crime Writing Competition. And so what it then did was that prior to, to that, I had sent out um, initial copies to some agents um, and things like that and some publishers and I would get lukewarm responses like, uh, send more when you're done, you know, talk to us when you're this, you know. Um, I actually got one or two that basically told me that there's no market for that kind of book uh, at that particular point in time. Ah. So, <laughs> yeah. So, so I got a number of rejections, I must say. I did get a number of rejections. Uh, but after the yeah. Little Brown Award, um, I did speak to the, the, the panel on, on, on Little Brown and I said to them, uh, guys, I, are you guys interested in helping me to find an agent kind of thing? And they were like, <laughs> okay, no. I mean, we can give you some contacts and things like that. So I, 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 and I think this is something that I like to say to writers that are starting out. It's like, take risks. Just take risks, you know. As long as you're polite, as long as you're respectful and as long as you're warm, you know, just take the risks. So and and be and be bold and brash because my 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 subject line was always um was always um my for my queries to the agent would always be award winning author requests um, <laughs> uh, an agent or request representation and there were little down. When uh, Little Brown gave me some some names, referred some names to me, I would actually say something like um, "referral from Little Brown" <laughs> kind of thing. Oh, you know? So, I, I, so I, I would literally put it out. I mean, the headline. I think that's one of the reasons why I say that my my experience in advertising really helped because my subject matter just screamed "click, click yeah. now," <laughs> you know. Yeah. And, 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 and yeah, and they would open it, and and I, I got a number of people. Saying okay, I'll read it, and and I still got a number of rejections, but I got a lot of interested agents that said, okay, send me the full manuscripts, and some would say this is not for me at this time, or it's good writing, but it's not really what I want to represent, and all that, and so, yeah. and I and I kept on, and I think that is also another another advice is that you need to have a very nice closed circuit of friends and colleagues that can advise you. So I had some very good friends that were already published and I would actually ask them, so what do you look out for in an agent? And they would say, you know, look out for, you know, that you like each other. Look out for the fact that they really are champions of the book and of your mm-hmm. career, not of this particular book. And so I was able to narrow that down to a couple of agents and I usually, I used it to test their passion for the work, uh, their interest in me as a person, and so I was very lucky where that was concerned. So I have a very, very good agent that I love very much. She's very, very, very good. Um, mm-hmm. And um, and he was able to put it out there and it went on auction. And I would end this anecdote by saying that it's the most miraculous thing ever. And that is that he sent out the manuscript on, I think, February 17th. I will never forget. Uh, of course uh, an important date literally he sent it out on february 17th and on and on february 20th he got an offer from the from an italian publisher he just got an offer so less than literally 48 hours after we sent it out we got an offer 
And and I think that that was very, very inspiring and very encouraging. And um, I've, I've never I've never regretted going that um, that route. So but so my my journey to being published is a combination of brash boldness and <laughs> luck and um, <laughs> audacious <laughs> dreaming and quite to be honest desperation. <laughs> you know because <laughs> yeah. Let's say I'm not young. Um, I I turned fifty in in August and. I just knew that it was now or never. And I think that I also approached how, that that affected my approach because I, I, it was now or never. You know, I just had mm. to do it kind of thing. Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, I think there's a lot of things that we can, we as, you know, I, I say we as I am also, I'm an unrepresented uh, writer and like a lot of our listeners are unrepresented. There's a lot that we can relate yeah. to in what you've just said and also that we can take from, I think, be brash, be bold and, and make sure you have a connection with your agent. That's very important. Yeah, yeah um, sorry, Jenny. I think that's very interesting that you said that you're unrepresented. I'm sorry to interrupt, but I think that is, it, it's, an, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a very important thing that we need to share as writers because i don't think that we hear it enough from those that have gone before us the the absolute necessity to be nice you need to be nice it's something a, a literary icon of mine um, roxane gay calls being a responsible literary citizen you need mm, yeah. to be nice you need to be approachable. And, you know, even if you get a rejection letter, you know, send a nice letter back to them and say, thank you so much for your feedback. Um, is there anything that you would like me to watch out for as I continue seeking representation? And what you're really doing at the end of the day is that you're building a network. You know, you're building yeah. a network, you know, at the end of the day. I mean, I, I think in my journey, I had a particular uh, agent that I, I was really quite nasty to and I regret it to this day you know um, because <laughs> of the fact yeah really because of the fact Femi that, I can't yeah. imagine you being nasty at all oh, <laughs> like literally <laughs> I, I can't imagine it <laughs> okay let, let's let's put it like this I was less than nice <laughs> but but that was because I was feeling emotional and I had had a number of rejections up to that point and I was really hopeful about this particular one because I felt I was led on. But at the end of the day, I think the bottom line, uh, talking to unrepresented writers, writers that are starting out, is that I cannot emphasize enough. Talent comes standard. You have to yeah. assume yeah. that talent comes standard, but your ability to relate with people and to speak kindly and respectfully to people is so important at the end of the day. I think it's karma. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, what goes around comes around. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. That's brilliant. Well, thank you so much for sharing that with us. And I think it's now time for the final question oh, of dear. the interview. <laughs> and the final question is... Femi, if you were stranded on a desert island and had nothing but a single book with you, which book would you take? Can I choose two or only one? Well, Go on then, only just one for is you, the Femi. Because, because, Jamie, Jamie, it depends on the type of island. Right? Oh, okay. Um, yeah. okay. Because if, it, if, if it's an island that I chose to go to because I wanted to be alone, that's oh. a different matter. 
It has stranded because every other person on the ship has died or drowned, and I'm the only <laughs> living one. You know, that's another type of book entirely. You know what I'm saying? So, yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. A psychologist. Is yeah. <laughs> so let's just, yeah, let's just pick one. So if I if I choose to go and I want to be alone on a, uh, on an island, I promise uh-huh. you the book that I would pick would always be a little life by Hanya Yan. Uh, yes. Yeah, I can't pronounce yeah. the name so much. It's my all-time favorite book. It is a soap fest, over-the-top, beautiful <laughs> writing. Uh, yeah. I just love that book. Yeah, it's immense. I think it's about 700 plus pages. And I can just delve into it and delve into it over and over again. So I love that book. But if yeah. I am stranded on an island and it's true no <laughs> choice of mine and I am depressed because I've lost almost all my loved ones and I'm thinking of, you know, I'm thinking of something to lift my spirits. It will have to be John Ivan's A Son of the Circus. Oh, okay. okay. Mm-hmm. I find it the, one of the most uplifting, funny, um, character-driven, setting immense, beautiful writing book I've ever read. So John oh. Ivan's A Son of the Circus, yes. Well, that's Brilliant. one of the best reviews I've ever heard. It really sure. is, isn't it? So... It really is. I'm <laughs> going to go run and buy, buy it now, Femi. Literally. You have to. It's one of those beautiful books. I mean, he's written quite a number of books, The World According to Gap, Hotel New Hampshire and all that. But A Son of the Circus has a special place in my heart. It's set in India and it is just immensely lush. I love it. Ah, oh, beautiful. Oh, well, honestly, thank you so much, Femi, yeah, for um, for joining us. Uh, it's been literally a pleasure and so wonderful chatting to you. Your energy is infectious. Um, I'm sure <laughs> oh, all of our listeners will awesome agree. <laughs> <laughs> literally, it's been a, such a pleasure. Um, and if you want to keep up with Femi's latest news, you can follow him on Twitter, and it's at Femi K, spell F E M I. K-A-Y underscore author. Yes, thank you so much, Femi. It's been it's been a real treat speaking with you. And to everyone listening, just to make sure you don't miss an episode of this podcast, you can follow us on Twitter at Right and Wrong UK and on Instagram at Right and Wrong Podcast. Lightseekers is absolutely brilliant. Uh, really excited to see where Philip goes next to investigate. And uh, you, you can find it on our book list at uk.bookshop.org slash shop slash right and wrong. Thank you so much, Femi, Thank for joining you. us. Thank you. And You're thanks to wonderful. everyone listening. We will see you Thank next you. time. Bye. Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com aware.